Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, a podcast devoted to all things RPGs. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I don't know about you, but I am just feeling such a Friday mood right now. I cannot just stay awake and healthy and happy. I've been playing so many video games and staying up way past my bedtime. Yeah, it really is that time of year, isn't it? I am like, oh, I want to play Final Fantasy fourteen. Oh, I want to play Hades. I want to play Genshin Impact. It doesn't stop. It will never stop. Before this podcast, I posted my FIFA 21 review. And FIFA 21, man, that game really makes me hate video games. <laughs> There's another back-of-the-box quote from Cat Bailey. This game will make you hate video games. Cat Bailey, you as a gamer. Hades made me feel full and happy and wonderful, and FIFA makes me feel empty and awful. FIFA just kind of deflates you like the proverbial soccer ball. I spend a lot of time grinding in that game and playing multiplayer matches, and it all feels kind of hollow and empty, whereas when I play an RPG, I feel like I'm getting something legit out of the experience. Uh, you shared a picture of someone was that someone saying your team was trash or just something oh, you saw that wasn't that was just something i saw on reddit where <laughs> somebody said good game you have a good team you you're bad you should buy a new team well okay <laughs> i'll go and pack ronaldo then cool <laughs> come on rock okay, i'll go grab ronaldo isn't it like all random or, or like packs and stuff like that not all random if you right. invest wisely in the transfer market you can just get coins automatically and then you can use that to buy your favorite characters it just takes a lot of grinding and time of course it does and just like i love how it respond responded that was a good game thank you very much you suck go away there's an <laughs> absolutely right there there's an absolutely atrocious method called the bronze pack method where uh -huh. you just buy these very cheap packs over and over and over again selling basically little items for pennies on the dollar and building up building up to millions of coins from with a few coins at a time it is the most worst grind horrible ever i can't speak i'm so annoyed by this <laughs> it sounds like a real racket that's a shame i mean just play some soccer people enjoy yourselves no i'm going to sit on my mobile app and keep opening packs and selling stuff so that i can get coins so i can buy my virtual players that's more fun than playing soccer apparently well, go outside and play soccer. Do that. You don't have to worry about packs or bronze packs or scamming other people. All right. Let's talk about role-playing games. This yes, week, let's. we have a special guest. His name is Sven Vinky. He is the founder of Larian Studios, and they just launched Baldur's Gate 3. We talked to him about the reception so far, how Larian is managing to scale up, and how Baldur old school Baldur's Gate fans are responding to Larian's fresh take on the series. It's a really great conversation, as usual, because Sven is a great interview. So please stay tuned for that. If you enjoy the podcast, can I recommend that you go and leave us a review over on iTunes, Stitcher, or over the podcast platform of your choice? Positive reviews help the visibility of the site and just brightens our day in general makes me feel good when i see a good review so it, it casts sunshine down into our lives so much sunshine onto the blood god or something like that you can follow me on twitter at the underscore catbot nadia is at nadia oxford i'm on twitch at cat bailey tv we also have a newsletter that comes out every single wednesday nadia wants to talk about the newsletter this week well, I was inspired by the recent reveal of smash uh, of steve and smash steve from minecraft and he wasn't exactly my first pick, I'll be honest, but on the other hand, I really 
think he was a good pick for uh, for younger players to get them kind of interested in Smash. So then I started thinking, you know, back in terms of my own wish list, what kind of RPG characters would I like to see unveiled in Smash? And uh, of course, that's kind of a, a selfish wish because we have been spoiled in terms of JRPG characters in Smash. We got the Dragon Quest hero. We got Cloud, which was a crazy reveal. Uh, Joker was a really fun reveal at the Game Awards, if you remember that. So we have some really good representation, but we can always have more. And I started thinking, it's like, I still believe Gino is going to be in there. I still think he is going to be one of the reveals. So to me, that's that's definitely 50-50 or more. And I started thinking about, like, you know what? Me being me, I'd like to have one of the Final Fantasy Dragoons in there. Give me Kane, give me Istinian, I don't care. Have of someone who can jump high and like lose control of and die, but has a cool lance. Uh, I don't even play Smash that much, so I have no I have no skin in this conversation. But you know how it is. You just got to get angry over things you don't care, you don't actually participate in. That's the way of the internet. Why add a dragoon when you could just add another Fire Emblem character? Uh, yeah, more more sword boys. <laughs> <laughs> more sword boys but dragoons use lances they can use swords but they, they favor lances and i think lances are cool i loved that when they announced that a new character from what was coming to smash fire emblem immediately started trending yeah <laughs> that was actually quite hilarious yeah that was great what's funny is that bylas is actually a really fun character to play with in smash i really like them so here, I mean, the the work that Sakurai puts into the Smash character roster is, is just baffling. Uh, he worked really hard to make sure Byleth wasn't just another sword clone, uh, same as he worked to really implement Steve's really unique moveset into Smash, and that's pretty nutty to look at, too. Uh, guy's kind of a genius. I was expecting Paper Mario before Steve, but Steve wasn't that surprising to me. No, when Ma- when Mario kind of crashed through the the wall, and I saw how blocky the blocks were. I said, "Okay, yeah, I know who's coming." And then I saw like the Enderman eyes kind of light up in the background, and I said, "Yeah, okay, uh, this is going to be a reveal, all right." I figured it would be a Mario thirty fifth anniversary related reveal. That's why I predicted Paper Mario. That's not a bad prediction because that's another uh, wish uh, I'm I kind of had was having a Paper Mario character in there, particularly one of the. Maybe one of the, the party members from, like, Thousand Your Door, like Goombello or Coops. There's only one character I want in Smash, and I know they will never be added, because, in a way, they're already there as basically an assist trophy, so it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Who is it? Minna riding Wolf Link from Twilight Princess. That would be a really cool add, and you're right, since they are an assist trophy, you're probably not going to see them in the full game. Same with Waluigi. Everyone's holding on hope to Waluigi. He's an assist trophy. He's not coming to the game, people. I'm sorry. It would be cool if when Breath of the Wild 2 came out, they added Zelda, the Breath of the Wild version. Yes, I would like that very much. And she uses the uh, Sheikah Slate to summon like different runes and stuff. That'd be really cool. Badass Breath of the Wild Zelda. Just full name right there. <laughs> That's who you select on the, on the uh, screen. You got Toon Link and Badass... Uh, Breath of the Wild Zelda. All right, that's our newsletter. You can go and subscribe on the website. Let's continue on to RPG news. First item of business, Baldur's Gate 3. Now available in early access. It is doing extremely well. Sold already several million copies, I believe. Uh, Larian has been completely overwhelmed by the amount of excitement and demand for 
a game that currently is only available on PC and Stadia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Stadia. I've been playing Baldur's Gate 3. I've been really enjoying it, Nadia. It's really good. I think you would actually like it. Yeah, once it's complete, um, I will definitely be trying it. And I'm kind of enjoying reading some of the takes about it and some of the, like, Mike just put up a whole thing about the races and which ones he likes and how humans are really boring and elves are really smug. And and human half-human, half-elves are, are kind of boring and smug. I'm playing as a drow who has blue skin and is very sexy. Yeah, he was saying that drows are basically my chemical romance all the way down. I, I dig I'm that. I'm into it. Yep. That's yep, my character. Yeah, too. I don't usually I actually play humans in games like these because I like the feeling a little of being a little more what's the word grounded when mm-hmm. I'm uh, playing a high fantasy universe. And so I can play as a human character, which is like an extension extension of myself, a self insert type character. But in this case, being a drow is just a lot of fun because you have these role playing options where you can choose drow specific options or. In my case, I'm playing as a warlock, so warlock-specific options. Yeah. I'm not oh, usually a more cool. a magic user either, but being a warlock yeah. is super fun. So that's interesting. You're really kind of going in a different direction here. You're not a human. You're a drow, which is kind of like weird elf thing, like the different skin. And you're a magic user. See, I, I don't think I'll ever be a magic user. I guess I just sort of figured that magic was going to be OP in a game like Baldur's Gate, so I mm-hmm. might as well jump mm-hmm. ahead of the curve and use magic also it just seemed to fit more with a drow character rather than being like a sword user or whatever yeah are, that sometimes happens with races are there like racial bonuses for certain jobs i don't know about racial bonuses for certain jobs i mean each characters have certain racial bonuses period like right. the ability to see in the dark and whatnot so yeah so but it's not really tailored to one job or the other which is good i don't know it might be <laughs> i haven't seen any out uh, <laughs> I will say that Baldur's Gate 3 is very action-packed. A lot of people have called it a Dungeons & Dragons by way of Michael Bay. (laughs) (laughs) Explosions. I mean, seriously, you start out on a Nautilus ship, which is the Mind Flayer spaceship from, I believe, Spelljammer. Uh And it's very alien in that you have these little tadpoles that are going to people's eyes and taking over their brains. That's going to turn them into Mind Flayers. It's pretty gross. And then there's a huge battle, and you like literally go into hell, and you're fighting demons, and then the spaceship crashes, and there are dragons everywhere, and you're just like, and this is all like in the first five minutes. Yeah, that's pretty badass, I have to say. I'm probably going to close my eyes during the the slug thing, though. I saw some Baldur's Gate fans going, "Uh, you know, a real D&D adventure (laughs) like starts off at a... An inn, an inn, and there's a mysterious traveler who gives you a quest, and it all starts out small, and then you get to the huge explosions and everything. Larian's like front loading it all, and I'm like, oh, whatever. They can do their own thing. I don't care. Picture it as it's starting at an inn, but the inn blows up. And that's a good. <laughs> that's a good compromise, I think. Well, I don't think that starting in media res is necessarily a bad thing because no, I agree. I love in media res stuff. Um, it's my weakness. As I asked Sven about this, actually, later on in the interview, and he was like, well, you know, in having all this stuff happens, it allows people to be grounded in everything that is to come. So, like, they know that there are going to be demons. They know that there are going to be mind flayers. You know that the demons and mind flayers don't get along. And you see that they're being chased by dragons. And here's why. And so you have a maybe a better understanding of what's going on right from the jump rather than having to kind of work your way into it 
See, I'm actually, even though I'm I'm quite familiar, familiar-ish with D&D's tropes and whatnot, especially since I was a Dragonlance fan, do I really have to play the first two Baldur's Gates to understand this story for three? No, it's grounded in the universe, but I think it takes place quite a bit after the original Baldur's Gate 2. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's it's good. very much kind of its own story. Mm-hmm. And of course, Final Fantasy cribs so much from D&D, I'll be at home anyway. My understanding is that it's going to have hooks into the previous two games, but I think Larian really wants people to be able to just jump right in. It's definitely not picking straight up from Baldur's Gate 2. That's good. So yeah, anyone can kind of just jump in and enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. The other big controversy, Nadia, is Larian going turn-based rather than real-time with pause. Ah, ooh, yes. Personally, I prefer turn-based myself just because I, I, li- I feel like it's more in keeping with the traditional D&D model, which is, you know, turn-based, and uh, it's more strategic. And I think that yeah. Larian does a really good job of layering in a lot of options. And in the meantime, like the combat is fun and this game is freaking gorgeous. Did I already mention that, Nadia? Holy crap. This is you did. the apparently looks great. best looking AAA RPG that I've seen since Dragon Age Origins. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So like it no offense to Pillars of Eternity or Wasteland Three or whatever, like those are fine RPGs. It's just that in terms of presentation, Baldur's Gate three is another level, I think. So that's actually a good sign because this game is still in early access and we don't know when the final build is coming out. It's basically right? an alpha. Um, yeah, so and it's already apparently really cool. Like I've heard a little bit of criticism here and there, of course, because it's alpha, but yeah, overwhelmingly people seem to love it. Though when I was streaming it, I got to a point where I died and then I realized that I lost 30 minutes of progress because it just decided to stop autosaving. Oh, yeah, that's alpha for you. That was, uh, <laughs> that was annoying. That, that that would be quite annoying. Mike says that Mike's played through the early access of Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2, and he says that Baldur's Gate 3 is way further along than either of those games were. Wow, so hopefully I'll get to play it soon. It's coming to consoles, of course. I can't remember if it's coming to Switch. Uh, they haven't announced anything yet. If it okay. follows the Divinity Original Sin 2 pattern, basically Baldur's Gate 3 will start out on PC and Stadia. And then after it's properly out for a while, there will be a definitive edition for PS5 and Series X. Ah, oh yeah, we're looking at the next generation of consoles here. I kind of doubt that it's going to be on Switch because it they really had to squeeze Divinity Original Sin 2 onto the Switch. Mm-hmm. And this one is a appreciable leap forward, Nadia. Yeah, so probably looking at the next generation here. So that's understandable. Anyway, you can go read Mike's impressions of Baldur's Gate 3 over on the site and stay tuned for my interview with Sven a little bit later. In the meantime, Nadia and I played some Genshin Impact. It's uh, currently out. It was the subject of a little bit of a controversy, Nadia, because apparently it actually censors the words Taiwan and Hong Kong. I'm curious, in your opinion, is that a reason to not support Genshin Impact? I heard that basically every game made in China does that, and it's not, of course, the decision of developers. It's just something you have to do if you want your game to be published in China. It's kind of it's kind of bad. Um, but whether or not it's a reason to play the game, I don't know. That's I guess that's really a, a, up to personal decision, because I have not played a whole lot of Genshin Impact. I just... 
Uh, it runs like garbage on the, on my PS4. I don't know why. I guess you have a launch PS4 now. I have a launch PS4. That's my problem. Everything right there. runs like garbage on it. <laughs> it's like having a PC from 2013. Well, I wonder why my this stuff doesn't run on my PC from 2013. Yeah, basically, but. It's also just weird to me to play such a, a highly pr- well-produced game, because it is quite polished and well-produced, uh, that's free to play and just kind of tensing myself up for what's going to happen next. When am I going to get like charged for what I'm doing? When am I going to get encouraged to, to buy this thing? As it is, it kind of reminds me of my, my olden days, harumph harumph, when I used to review and uh, mock review a lot of Korean MMORPGs on my phone. And those were great games with great production values. Like, I did enjoy them. And they gave you so much stuff at the beginning, the way that Genshin Impact does. And you just know you're getting loaded down with all these gifts because they want you to keep on playing, number one. And number two, those all those nice little bonuses are going to dry up. And that's when you're going to be kind of left hanging and said, and the enemies are too strong. And it's like, okay, what do I do now? It's like, well, got to pay up if you want to keep on going. Not necessarily saying that Genshin Impact is like that. I'm just saying it puts me in that mind frame and I just can't really get over it. So the nice thing I will say about Genshin Impact is that its presentation and graphics are better than anything I would expect from a game like this, like a free-to-play game. And it's actually pretty fun in terms of how the the gameplay works, the elemental systems and everything. I like yeah. being able to... Uh, for example, cast water and then freeze enemies. That's pretty. That's pretty baller. I like yeah. being able to set enemy shields and clubs on fire. That's cool. I I think the giant <laughs> dragon that was flying around was awesome. Yeah, like that, that was a really cool dragon. Uh, I like the the character outfits. I think that the characters are pretty well designed. I think the art's good. I think the overworld is really impressive, actually. Um. Even if it looks like it was literally just lifted straight out of Breath of the Wild and dropped into this free-to-play open-world RPG. Yeah, especially when things are on fire. I feel like the firecraft is ripped straight from it. That said, it feels very cynical to me in a way that Mm. I find kind of obnoxious, actually. It's very designed by committee. Exactly. That's the word I'm thinking of. Cynical, designed by committee. I agree. In the sense that they're like, well, let's take Breath of the Wild. And we'll load it up with really attractive characters and we'll make sure that they're all very sexy and have like fancy outfits. And oh, look, there's Red Fire Boy and there's Blue Ice Boy and probably they're dating. Wink, wink. And (laughs) they're just ticking all the freaking boxes in order to get people to play this game. And, you know, it's probably going to work. It's already... You know, got a huge install base. People are playing it like crazy. I bet if I looked on Twitch right now, it'd be pretty high up there. Uh, Gosh, about like the the Hong Kong and and whatnot, the censorship there. I think, like I said, if you're playing a game from China, you're going to get that every single time because it's a requirement from the the Communist uh, Party, uh, from what I understand. So that's really well. Are you going to play? Do you want to do you want to play it? I mean, a lot of games these days are from China and. So a lot of them are great, but they all kind of have that requirement behind them, as I understand. Not just that. Uh, FIFA, if you look, uh, it doesn't have Taiwan. It has Chinese Taipei, which is the officially approved right. version name. Exactly. Yeah. So basically, anybody not who wants China. to do business in China has to kowtow to its policies on this front. 
I should mention Genshin Impact has a higher user count right now on Twitch at 56.5k viewers than mm -hmm. Dota 2, Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, which admittedly Cold War is not out yet. So um, huh. Apex Legends. Wow. Yeah. So it's doing okay for itself. It's right behind Valorant. I wonder how much money it's making. Oh, it must be making so much money. People Hand spend an outrageous amount. When I and do you did you kind of dig the icon when you uh, download the game and it's just this like smiling anime girl? Of course. I'm like, oh, oh dear, what have I gotten myself into? Of course, they know what they're doing. They do, they do, and it, and to be fair, a lot of people are having a lot of fun. So yeah. given the world we live in, that well, it's one fun. thing to be cynical; it's another to actually be able to execute on that cynicism. That's true. You got it. You got me there. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, you could say that we're going to have cute, sexy anime girls and we're going to put it onto a Breath of the Wild open world. It's quite another to execute it in a way that's actually fun. <laughs> yeah. No, you're absolutely right about that. And like I said, playing what I did of the game, I can't say that they did spring that trap on me saying, hey, hey, you, no more gifts for you. You got to pay up. So uh, I can't exactly sit here and say don't play Genshin Impact because for all I know it's it's fair all the way through. But I bet I it ends up being myself. the war. It's going to be the Warframe of the next generation. I guarantee it. It's going to be mm, freaking popular. It's never going to go away. <laughs> A year from now, we're going to be talking about the Christmas event, like the Christmas event to get your and then the Easter event. Oh look, uh, the the Fire Boy is he's in a Santa costume now. Santa costumes are so boring. Give me yeah. something else. Give me the the, the and Amber's in an elf costume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Ooh, and, and the cute mascot is a candy cane. Oh, look, and they have little re they have little reindeer horns, right? You know, that's so it's so unoriginal. Give me like I said, give me something else. Give me the Krampus. All right, next item of business. We only have a teaser for the Monhun movie, but it looks so bad already. El Mao. <laughs> <laughs> Just reading directly from my notes. Are you? Yes. <laughs> LMAO. It looks so bad. Yeah, it's um we we've had a teaser. I I don't remember how long it was. Fifteen, not even thirty seconds, and it's just a bunch of military people shooting guns at a monster. Um, I think it might be a particular monster. I didn't really get a good look at it, but it's a matter of why. Why does this? Ha why is this playing out the way it does? Um, we have good video game movies now. We know how it can be done. De Detective Pikachu isn't going to win any Oscars, but I mean, for visual effects, but it was a fun movie that really reveled in the, in the Pokemon lore. And I have to admit, Sonic turned it around. Like, and I, I still don't think it was a fantastic movie, but I did enjoy it. And I was really cynical about it at first because it was like, oh, God, the military is getting involved and going to find this rogue hedgehog. It's going to be so boring. But what saved it for me was Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik. Like, he was just fantastic. So even that could be a lot. That was fun and decent. The last but movie I have... saw before the pandemic. Damn. That was the last movie I saw before the apocalypse. I think everyone did. It's mm -hmm. so creepy. <laughs> God damn. Oh, and they just closed movie theaters here in Toronto again because of the, the numbers are just out of control. But yeah, point is, the Monster Hunter movie looks so, so bland. So very much typical of the movies they tried to make on based on games in the aughts. Come on, people. We can do better than that. We can have fun. Wouldn't it be fun to have a Monster Hunter movie that just kind of had the lore and had the setup and had the, the visuals and the unique culture that you have going on with Monster Hunter? They have a whole universe that's been in development for so, so long. Have fun with it. God. I think that Monster Hunter would, works much better as an anime. Yeah. 
I think so too. Um, I think turning into a live action movie is stupid. <laughs> if it should, it should be a three D animated film or an ad, or an anime, don't make it into a live action joint. I, I still feel like it could work for live action because the way that Detective Pikachu did, you have to have a lot of CG in there, but it could still work. But yeah, I guess I'd rather see a 3D animated movie, one with good 3D animation, or an anime. I mean, Capcom's in the process of trying to reboot the Resident Evil films after all yeah. of those Mila Jovovich uh, films <laughs> that were absolutely <laughs> terrible. And now she's like, I'm going to go ruin a different Capcom franchise. Pretty much. And I feel bad for her because nothing against her, but just, eh, not exactly great movies. I do have to say, though, I want, I want like Toronto to just be blatantly be Raccoon City and nobody cares about even trying to disguise it. And to this day, Toronto is known as Raccoon City within, you know, people who live here. And I don't know if it's because we have raccoon mafias running the streets or because of Resident Evil 2 or both. So I'm watching the teaser trailer for Monster Hunter right now. And basically what it is, is Diablo is popping out of the sand, and then she's turning yeah, around with her chain gun. Yes. Which makes no dang sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, what, a military film meets Monster Hunter? No. Something like that. I think it's one of those military has to explore this secret land or a secret yeah. whatever. and An yay. elite military force led by Lieutenant Artemis fall through a portal into a world populated by giant monsters. They meet a hunter who helps them to survive. So it's like Land of the Lost. There you go. Yes. Living just in a, the land of the lost. Sorry. Just less fun. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's continue on to our interview with Sven Vinky about Baldur's Gate 3. Don't go away. Okay, I am with Sven Vinke, who is the founder of Laren Studios, one of the fastest risers in the RPG space over the past generation. Sven, you've been on the show before. Welcome back. Hi, Kat. It's good to be here. Sven, congratulations on launching Baldur's Gate 3 into Early Access. How are you feeling right now? Uh, <laughs> a bit tired, to be honest. Uh, we're uh, working on our last, uh, well, not last, but for this week, last uh, patch for the week, at least. Uh, so I'm hoping to see it go outside tomorrow morning. So I hope that's going to work out. I'm I'm curious. Um, have you seen any unexpected results so far? Now that it's in the wild, the, there were more technical glitches than we had hoped for. Mm -hmm. uh, we were uh, plagued by um, yeah a very stupid problem, but it cost us a lot of time uh, in the weeks before release. Uh, so that was a that was an issue. So I hadn't hoped for that. Uh, but in terms of reactions to the direction of the game and uh, how the game has been received, uh, I think it's pretty much what we saw already before. So I'm, I'm uh, seeing more and more people discover exactly how deep it is. So that that is cool to see. Uh, so in general, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy, I have to say. Yeah, I was playing it last night and my first reaction was, wow, this has to be the most, the biggest, most beautiful version of this particular type of game in, since Baldur's Gate 2 back in the 
late 90s, maybe Dragon Age Origins in 2008. I mean, it is, at least from a graphical standpoint, a huge leap from Divinity Original Sin 2, which was an attractive game, don't get me wrong, but it seems like Baldur's Gate 3 is on another level. I mean, it seems, tell me about pushing to try and hit that next level of graphics. It was one of the core pillars. Uh, Baldur's Gate uh, 2 and 1 back in the days were also fairly genre-defining in that front. Uh, so we wanted to hit it as high as we could. And one of the, the, the very key ambitions was because of all the storytelling that we wanted to do was to be able to uh, do cinematic storytelling uh, in BG3, uh, which was quite the ambition because we have a lot of words in the game. There's 48,000 lines of dialogue just in Act 1. Uh, spread, uh, I think there's 520 or 530,000 words in the game. So it's really a lot. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that, that was part of it. And of course, when the camera comes closer, that means that the graphics uh, fidelity has to go up. And so I'm, I'm very happy with the results that the team has already achieved. And uh, it's going to get only better now because I know everything that they still have planned. So it's going to look a lot better by the time the game is actually released also. How much bigger... Like from a percentage standpoint, would you say this is the Divinity Original Sin 2 when it's all but said and done? It depends on the metric, uh, but I would say three times as big oh. in terms of, uh, well, I mean, like the metrics are, we had about 100 people on DOS 2. And so we have about 300 people, uh, give or take a few on, on BG3. Uh, we have in one act, uh, so right now the word count is like half a million. Uh, so I think we had uh, a million in... No, that's not true. We had, sorry, no, we had 80,000 lines in DOS 2 for full game. We have 48,000 lines in Act 1 for BG3. So multiply that by three and you start getting a picture. So yeah, I would say about three times. You guys scaled up tremendously under uh, Divinity Original Sin 2 and it seems like you're scaling up even more with Baldur's Gate 3. How do you successfully scale up your studio so much while also kind of retaining the ethos and the personality that made you guys such a success in the first place? Well, by by splitting it up in smaller groups, uh, our studio <laughs> model our studio model is different than than most studios uh, in that we're spread across the globe. So each team is uh, part of uh, the team that's working on uh, BG3, uh, but there are typically the sizes like uh, what 60, 70 people. Uh, and that helps in uh, keeping it still a, a, a more family size, if you want. And it's much harder when you have everybody sitting in one huge office uh, to, to maintain that. Uh, so each of the studios have their own culture, but they are all people that, that very much fit the entire learning culture. And in normal times, we meet each other a lot. Uh, this, of course, now has become a problem because we haven't seen each other since the beginning of the year, actually. Uh, like so many people, I guess, across the globe. Uh, so that is how, how we do it. It's a very different approach to, to, to most studios, but for us, it seems to be working. So I started, as I already mentioned, I started playing Baldur's Gate 3 last night. I rolled a drow. Mm -hmm. And my first impression in playing as a drow is, wow, everybody seems to be very hot for my drow character, which is understandable. My drow character is very attractive. <laughs> um Eric and I were comparing notes. Eric Van Allen is our news editor. And uh, when we met up with Shadowheart, it seems uh, I got horny Shadowheart. She seemed very attracted to my character. And mm. he got racist Shadowheart, direct quote. And she, uh, he had what character? Oh, uh, he rolled the um, 
green skin. I can never remember what the, the actual. Yankee? Yes, that one. Yeah, yes. she hates she hates Gifyankis for a very good reason. Uh, so Gifyankis are an evil uh, spacefaring race uh, that uh, she uh, she and her uh, and her background character. You're going to figure out why. As you, I'm not going to spoil the story. So, but that is a unique reaction to the Gifyanki, and you have the unique reactions to the Drow. She has other unique reactions to to different uh, race selections. That's interesting because I've seen some impression people saying, "Oh, I don't feel like I'm as close to my party as I would in, in other RPGs," and I'm like, well, "I don't know. I already feel like I'm bonding with uh, with the other characters. I've got a wizard in my party who." Uh, it's constantly making lots of quips, and I've got Shadowheart who is kind of checking me out every time I'm uh, in battle. I'm having a good time right now. Yeah, it's uh, it depends on on what you're looking for in your party because in early access we don't have all of the companions yet, and so there's lots of different types of people out there, and so we know that uh, the companions that are in there. They don't cater to everybody, that's for sure. I mean, like there's people that really want to have good characters in their in their party, and the ones that we picked for early access are not necessarily the the, the goodies uh, of this world, and so that can be a problem uh, for certain people. Well, that was uh, why did you guys decide to focus on custom characters before the pre-rolled characters for early access? So, for multiple reasons. Uh, so, well, for one reason, uh, because they're not fully ready yet. <laughs> so that's that's one that's aspect, of, and that's one aspect of that. But in uh, prioritizing, we said, well, people always tell us that we make the origin characters more special than the custom characters. So why don't we let them play with the custom characters first, so they don't have the option to pick the origin characters. One of the things that you can do in early access, so that they actually see how much depth there is already to the custom characters, because there's an entire backstory for each of the custom characters also that is as elaborate uh, as the origin characters. And it's very different to the origin characters. And so I can't spoil it uh, because uh, the story reveals itself as we progress through the game, but it is already that the seeds are being planted as you're playing. You'll only know what they are when you'll play a uh, avatar character or an origin character, sorry, uh, because then you'll see the differences. But for now, you, yeah, you'll see that it's a, it's a fleshed out character as a custom character, let's put it that way. Uh, and we picked the more evil and neutral characters uh, because we know that people in general don't pick those. And so we wanted to show them uh, and, and show how, yeah, where that leads when you're playing the game because we have a lot of permutations in it. And picking the evil options uh, leads to a completely different playthrough than if you pick the good options. It's making me think of Witcher 2 where you could theoretically have three completely different playthroughs depending mm -hmm. on which path you take. Would you say Baldur's Gate 3 is kind of like that, that depending on which character you decide to roll and some of the decisions you make early on, that you could just go down a completely wholly different path in the story? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's many, many, many paths. Like, you're a drow, right? So you're going to have an easy time with uh, with some of the uh, antagonists that you meet in Act 1. And they're going to, uh, if you convince them, they're going to think that you're one of them and they'll just let you through. Uh, your friend, the Gityanki, is going to have a much harder time. And, uh, and doing that, it's not going to work. But given them being good Yankee, they have their reputation. Uh, but if you're going to play one of the more common races, you're going to have, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be much, much harder. And you'll have to make some sacrifices perhaps to be able to, to talk your way through. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of combat. Yeah. When I, when I met Shadowheart, one of the options was, uh, aren't you kind of like, have you taken, have you noticed that I'm like a drow and everything? Like, aren't you like scared of me or something? And she's like, Nope, you're pretty cool. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. 
Yeah, so there's a uh, with the uh, well, you'll you'll notice as you progress. I'll just I'm not going to spoil it too much. When you're rolling the characters, there's the option of how much will the character you're attracted to. Um, there's a character that you can have kind of create, and it's like the character that you're imagining your dream, the character that you're mm-hmm. attracted to. How much will that matter in the long run? Uh, that particular character uh, is uh, is quite key to your custom character, actually. Uh, and so it is a manifestation uh, in your dreams that becomes a very important character as the game progresses, depending on the choices you make. Uh, so you can, uh, yeah, you'll you'll see again. Uh, there's a the problem with this early access is that this is a game that has so many strands, so many permutations that it's very hard to cut it off at a certain particular point. Uh, so, because the story flows over into everything that comes later, so there's there's, there's a lot of things that I can't talk about just yet. Uh, but rest assured that we put that there and we put the effort of putting that in character creation because it's a pretty important character. The very beginning of Baldur's Gate Three is really action packed. You're on a nautiloid ship. You're fighting. You're into the, you're into hell. You're fighting demons. The mind flares there, like. So much is happening before in just literally the first minute of the game. And some people have called it Dungeons and Dragons by way of Michael Bay. And I'm just <laughs> curious, like, what is the, why does Larian take the, this approach? Like, wh- because you kind of did this with Divinity Original Sin too. You seem to really like to kind of go, pow, man, you're into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it drags you in, right? Uh, mm-hmm. it, it shows you some of the. It's a, a good way of showing the antagonist that you're going to be up to up against later in the game, the powers that you're going to be wielding, the places you're going to be going. Uh, but you're way too low level to be able to to, to handle it. So you've seen the dangers of Seramorphosis of turning into a mind flayer. Uh, it's been if you click on a, a pot inside of the ship, you see that actually happening. Uh, you're seeing devils in conflict uh, with uh, dragon uh, dragons being ridden by Gityanki in conflict with mind flayers. That's linked to an overall conflict that's going on in the world. So you're seeing a lot, which all starts making sense as you progress in the game, and you're seeing it against the backdrop of, of, of a game that says this is going to be an epic adventure, and so it's announcing itself as epic. And so that those are all the things that you're seeing uh, all packed into a very yeah uh, very uh, small tutorial level, if you want. So it's kind of showing the full scope of the universe in a lot of ways. So like. Here is the playground that you're in. Get ready. You're going to have a great time. Exactly. Yeah. It's saying it's the promise of the adventure. Because then we drag you down with your feet and we start giving you mundane problems or relatively mundane problems. Uh, but it, 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 it's essentially telling you this is going to be high fantasy as you progress. Uh, but we're going to bring you back to the normal world now. I thought it was interesting. I saw some D&D fans, like hardcore D&D fans going, this is different from what I'm used to because in most D&D type adventures, you start out, you know, in an inn and it's all very low stakes to begin with. And then you reach the high stakes stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It begins with some sort of mystery and then slowly but surely you encounter uh, party members, whereas you guys are just like kapow, you know. It's a very different approach, I think, to D and D than all what a lot of people are used to. There's a lot of ways of doing it, and of course, you have to realize also that if you're playing classic uh, traditional tabletop, the dungeon master has to start explaining everything, so he has to build up the entire uh, narrative, and so it's a, it's not an abnormal way to start like very small and then build it up as players start to get to know it. We have the advantage of a video game, so we can show a lot of stuff. 
uh, all at once. I mean, if we put a guy on the dragon and we have him attack an autoloid, well, that takes us one second. You instantly see what's going on. And that's not necessarily going to be the case if you're going to have to explain to everybody. After the Nautiloid crashes on the beach. Oh, yeah, Shadowheart liked movie also because I tried to save her on the Nautiloid. There I you was go. like, oh, I want to save you. Come on. And um, yeah. the Yankee was like, no, you have to leave. <laughs> there you go. Um, but she was like, oh, you tried to save me. Okay, you're cool. And I'm like, yeah, I am cool. But when I was on the beach, it reminded me again of a lot of Divinity Original Sin 2 because if I recall correctly, you also start on a beach in that game uh, after washing up from the shipwreck. Yeah. Um, what, is, what, what, about it, what about starting on a beach appeals to you guys? Was that intentional? Yes. Uh, well, you started on Nautiloid in hell, if I can point it out. <laughs> That's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we brought you to a beach. Uh, I'm from the seaside. I think I, I, I told uh, that story already a few times. I'm from the seaside. I like the beaches. Uh, so this time it's a riverside, so it's not exactly a sea beach. Uh, so there, there's that. And the Kayontar is an important river and the, uh, that leads you all the way to, to Baldur's Gate. So I figured that it's not a bad way to start uh, on the beach. Uh, it's pretty. Uh, it's like... Uh, the start of an adventure, I like the worlds to be very pretty when you start because it's going to get darker and darker and darker as you progress. There's going to be a lot of misery in the worlds. So it's nice to see a world that is still in a, in a, let's call it, yeah, in a pristine uh, way, even though there's dead mind flayers and dead bodies uh, and dead fishermen all over the place. It's funny how our backgrounds impact where we naturally tend to. I'm from the cold and snowy north, so I like dark, grim games with lots of snow-capped mountains and big, big snowdrifts. There you go. Yeah, I can, uh, I can perfectly understand that. Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, I also like the color palettes that you get with beaches mm. and with water, and then going to nature. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a very diverse place. Eh? I mean, like, there's a lot of. I don't know how far you got already. Uh, but there's already a lot of diversity just in, in that first act of the game. I would have gone further, but the auto-saving was kind of letting me down, and I ended up losing a lot of progress. Uh, will there be more auto-saving in later versions of the game? Yes. I mean, like, it, it's funny that you mention it, because, I mean, like, I, you can hear me type on my keyboard. Uh, at 5.15 p.m., which is exactly 30 minutes ago, no, 40 mm -hmm. minutes ago, uh, I wrote in the, my little review channel where I put my requests. Also, need to get our auto saves and more frequently, but not too frequently either. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, yeah, we've seen that that's a common complaint. I hit the grease trap in one of the early dungeons mm -hmm. with the, the fire arrows. My entire party ended up on fire, exploding. Yeah. And I ended up losing like 35 minutes worth of progress. And I was like, I think that I'm going to be done for tonight. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, I know. Auto saves at, at points like this is, is something that we have to do. But there's a, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of stuff that we have to do in, in, in these RPGs that are so big. And um, we have a heat maps that we're tracking from the, uh, the gameplay sessions that everybody's doing. And so we're seeing where you're dying. And so at hotspots where people are dying, that's where we'll place our auto save triggers. I assume that you're getting all of the telemetry right now. What's the most popular race uh, to start from with all the early access players? Uh, I am going to dis disappoint you, but it's going to be the human male. That's surprising. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. I think Mike played as a human male, and he was annoyed that it was just a stats buff as opposed to like seeing, being able to see in the dark and that kind of thing. Uh, well, uh, human male is what it, it is. What it is, right? I mean, like mm -hmm. in D&D. 
So I'm not going to be able to... Hold on, can I see this? But I should be able to see in the dark as a human. Come on. Well, you see a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just around you. There's a small... I mean, like, we, we don't make you completely blind. There's a little bit around you, so... Uh, it, was, it was jarring switching over to my, my human wizard companion when yeah. I was in the dungeon because I suddenly could not see anything. I was like, oh, right. Oh, you need to you make a torch. Anything. You need yes. to make a torch and then mm -hmm. and equip a torch. We're going to have a button that we're going to add in the not-so-distant future that's going to allow you to uh, just click on it and equip the torch if you have a torch on you and put, use your flint to activate it, I to, bear, to, to light it. But it's not done yet, so now you have to do it the hard way. You have to take a piece of wood, you need to put it in a, a fire or in, a, in a, a burning torch, and then you'll have your torch in your hands. So getting back to the grease trap and everything, uh, Larian absolutely loves its environmental hazards with the explosions and the fire mm -hmm. and being able to interact with the environment in various interesting ways. It's been a quite a discussion point, especially among old-school Baldur's Gate fans, as to whether you guys uh, rely on that Maybe like maybe it has a bigger effect on the game than people would like. Uh, what's your take on that? Do you think that environmental effects can occasionally be too influential on how combat is resolved and that kind of thing, especially when everything is always on fire in that game? It's interesting because your colleague from Eurogamer just tweeted that he thought that there was not enough of it. Uh, so it's a very fine really? balance. You're never going to be able to please everybody. Uh, we do know from our playtests that we did internally that initially we had less environmental and there was a big, big, big ask uh, for that being included. I think we, we, we kind of uh, established that with our previous games that the environment was very important uh, and it asked the systemics of the gameplay. So we, we, we uh, I, I don't know, I can't think of the English word for it, but we, we increased the volume a little bit if you want. Uh, on that. So we're finding the balance. Um, all, there too, our, our analytics will help us. I mean, we can literally see what people are using. If they're using something too much, we will tune it down. If they're using it too little, we might tune it up. And like this, uh, we will eventually, through the course of early access, start balancing the game. Uh, and so, yes, and in RPG land, uh, for every player, there's an opinion, right? So we just try to navigate in between there. My friend Jason Wilson from GameSpeed said, that this is like he's had a lot of party wipes early in Baldur's mm -hmm. Gate 3 and that he saw that as a very good thing. My experience was kind of different. I Playing as a warlock, I felt like I was able to navigate encounters fairly easily, mostly because magic feels really strong pretty much out of the gate. Like, mm -hmm. uh, What's your take on kind of the tuning uh, on that front so far? Because I feel like I can just wreck people with like, I, I have a witch's lightning yeah. as one of my attacks, and I can't use it that much. But when I do use it, oh boy, people really get messed up with that particular spell. Yeah, so the, uh, so we stuck as close as we could to the player's handbook for the balancing. Uh, so there have been balancing changes and tweaks already that we've done. Uh, is Jason playing a mage by a wizard by any chance? Almost certainly. He usually plays as wizards. Yeah, exactly. So he's, he starts with 8 HP or so. So he's going to get stronger over time, but that is why he's having a hard time. And if he doesn't have a tank with him uh, or fighter in, in the form of Lysel, he might have a, a harder time. Uh, so, But he'll get more powerful over time. Warlocks are already stronger. Uh, you mm -hmm. also have the advantage of the short rest. Uh, which is going to help you. So he needs to long rest. So if he forgets to long rest, he will have a harder time also. So it's really tweaked. Uh, you get a different experience depending on which classes you have in your party, which is a good thing, I think, because it adds to the replayability of the game. 
but it's true. You can die very easily uh, in the game, uh, which I also personally think is a good thing. But we'll have difficulty levels, so, uh, but not now, not during early access. When I was in one of the early dungeons, I had my wizard companion. I, his name's Gale, right? I, yeah. Yes. Gale. I think I had Gale cast a big blinding cloud in mm-hmm. front of a door where a bunch of bandits were. Yeah. And they just basically had to run into the cloud where they were immediately blinded. Yes. And then I could just gun them down with my magical spells from my warlock and... I think Shadowheart also has spells in addition to being able to attack yeah. with uh, the yeah. So I was just able to pick them all off at range. I was like, "Oh, this is easy." <laughs> yeah, well, you do, you you use your environment by blinding them. I'm a strategic them. thinker. Yeah, no, it's cool. No, I mean that's that's how you're supposed to do it. You, you know, you can use that cloud uh, uh, to actually blind uh, sentinels, traps that are shooting at you, also. I used mm. that to, to defeat a, a very big dungeon that you'll encounter later on. So I was very proud of myself when I f- figured that one out. Uh, on, the, on the point of discussing the combat, I mean, you guys have made a huge point of talking about how like, you guys are a turn-based developer. You're sticking with that. And I like that personally because I don't think there's enough big-budget turn-based games. And I think it's pretty interesting that... Old school Baldur's Gate fans are annoyed that there isn't a real time with pause option. But I'm like, uh, real time with pause isn't necessarily written in the stars for this, right? I mean, if anything, mm-hmm. D&D is more of a turn-based experience in real life. Is Am I wrong for thinking that? No, absolutely not. You have the same thinking that we had. And I mean, it's not all the Baldur's Gate fans. It's a minority uh, mm-hmm. among, uh, because we, we, we did a lot of uh, discussions uh, when we started uh, working on this game. But the fact of the matter is that if you look at Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition and you look at how the score system is, system is action, bonus action, uh, movement, and then all of the manipulations of those actions and bonus actions to get something extra, the extra resources that you can get. Uh, so all of those things, they require some thinking to be able to use well as they were intended. And that you have to do in turn-based. If you do it in real time with pause, you end up heading the spacebar continuously to go uh, into a semi-pulse mode if you want. And so we figured that if we are going to have to make it in turns anyway, then best embrace it and go all the way for it. Uh, turns are the unit of a lot of things in the game. They're not only the unit of things in combat, they're also a unit outside of combat because if you hit force turn-based mode uh, and you start sneaking, it becomes very handy also. So I think the game benefited from that, to be honest. Uh, but I understand that there's a lot of people that, that wanted real-time with pause because uh, there's uh, very good games that you can make with real-time with pause also. Uh, so a choice needed to be made. Doing both of them, uh, which I could have imagined also, I think would have done a discredit to the game because you would have had the, um, the weakest of two worlds rather than the best of uh, one world. There's been some discussion about the, the action economy, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically... It doesn't. I've had a, a little bit of a hard time sussing out how useful the bonus action can be mm-hmm. in uh, Baldur's Gate Three. Like, can you walk me through that? Uh, your thinking on that a little bit in designing Baldur's Gate Three. Uh, bonus action is part of the rulebook, right? Uh, so we had a, a lot of versions of this. Uh, the bonus action at some point wasn't even there anymore. Uh, but then we brought it back. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that we made action, then we made it back bonus action, so we've been fooling around with it. It's true that depending on which class you're going to play, 
uh, at the very beginning of the game, there might not be that much for you. Uh, so, uh, and adding some of the, the things like uh, common actions like uh, shoving and jumping and, and throwing, uh, we saw an opportunity there for um, first, like, well, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. Let me rephrase all of that. Um, initially, when we started working on it, uh, one of our core problems and things that we were worried about was uh, the fighter and the ranger and the rogue. And they didn't have that much to do. Uh, and it's certainly not in the first levels. It changes a little bit later on in, uh, as they level up. And uh, so our initial thinking was we're going to make all of the common actions a bonus action so that they can, in addition to the thing that they would normally do, which is hit somebody or backstab somebody, uh, we are going to allow them to do something extra like shoving or jumping or throwing a, a bottle of uh, alchemist fire, something along those lines. Uh, but then that became too powerful. So then we brought it back to the, uh, we didn't make all of them bonus actions. We put, uh, I think, uh, jumping is now a bonus action and um, shoving is a bonus action, but throwing is an action. So we started fooling around with that. And so like this, we've been navigating the, the, the space of what was available to us. At this point, it feels like we're in a good place, but there's still like a, a lack of things that you can do with that bonus action. Uh, so I can imagine that in the in the months to come, we are going to look for extra things that we can put on top of that. Um, having just one action without the bonus action, that felt like too limiting for players. Uh, giving them two actions, which is also something that we tried, uh, was too powerful, uh, certainly in the in the setting of D&D. So this is how we ended up with uh, an action and a half, if you want. And now the, the real question is, do we deviate more? From the rule set by having more stuff that works with a bonus action or do we stick to it or on the contrary do we do we go lower a little bit with it so it's a yeah it's a an interesting field of balancing let's put it that way eric tells me that he's developed an obsession with throwing everything in baldur's gate 3 including corpses so <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so it's uh well i mean like it's fun right so and the throwing yeah. was actually put in there so that if you um the original scenario that we had written down was like, imagine that you're a Dwergar and your fighter is strong enough. Uh, your Dwergar can be thrown so that he can, what's their skill called again, that you can grow taller. Uh, so you can throw him behind enemy lines or you can have your halfling uh, rogue who you can throw behind enemy, behind somebody so that they can backstab, that kind of stuff. Uh, so that seemed like something uh, that, that would be funny. And then we, we figured out that throwing stuff just was fun. Uh, and so it, it became a thing in the game. I play a lot of tactics RPGs, so I've been instinctively just giving people like Shadowheart a hard shove so that they can yeah. move further, uh, a, a little bit further toward their opponents without having to actually move around the battlefield. That kind it's of a thing. Good, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good way of doing it. Uh, it's, you can also, if people are going to be stuck by an, an attack of opportunity reaction, uh, shoving them can actually uh, be, be helping them at that particular point in time. Or you can wake them up also, I think, with shoving. If they're if they're good, if gone prone. Uh, to to finish up on the turn based combat tip, um, I, w I wanted to circle back really quickly to Baldur's Gate Three gives me this sense of being a big budget game, like a really like it's really going for it in a lot of ways in terms of presentation and graphics mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, but there seems to be this kind of 
sense within the games industry that turn-based is too niche and you can't have it work in a big budget game and it's just a complete non-starter. But Larian's been really pushing back against that conventional wisdom with, with a lot of success. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what's your secret? Like, how, how are you able to prove this conventional wisdom so wrong? I don't... I just think it's fun. <laughs> like, honestly, I, you know. Can you tell Square Enix to please make a turn-based Final Fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that somebody just tweeted to me today that they're saying, oh, Larry, you did it all wrong. You should have made it real-time with pause. They sold 3.5 million units in one day or whatever. I don't know. I mean, like, it's, um, I, I believe that, and this is an ethos and, and, and the entire company is like, we, we're making something that we would like to play. And we mm. figured that if we would like to play it, other people would also like to play. And that's literally our market research. It's not very analytic or scientific, I guess, but mm. it seems to work for us. Kind of the last thing I want to discuss was the the rolling, uh, the dice rolling in mm. Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah. Um, it seems like there's always a push and a pull against RNG in a lot of games, especially RPGs, where some games definitely favor it, some other games aren't people... Uh, instinctively get annoyed when they feel like the the RNG gods are against them. Uh, Baldur's Gate 3 in particular has some really brutal checks early on, especially when you're interacting with the uh, the brain or the... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, um, the intellect of Are you guys going to be tuning down uh, those checks so that they're not quite as intense? Are you seeing a lot of telemetry on that regard? Uh, we'll let you choose. Huh? We're going to give you loaded dice. Uh, so right now you have like real dice. Uh, so they're literally random. And so you feel what that is. Uh, I don't think it's bad because uh, in a sense, we're, we're teaching people that are trying to play it now, just go with the rolls. Obviously, there's people that are safe coming, but the game is made to always work regardless of what the role is going to be. But we know there's also people that, that really want like, man, if I have 18 in my charisma, I want to be able to do this persuasion. I want a flat check. Uh, so we're going to be fooling around with giving people options and we'll just let them choose what they prefer. I mean, like our goal is not necessarily to force people into the RNG. So we know that it's uh, if you miss 20 times in a row, it can be quite frustrating. So we can help you with that. Uh, but we'll let you choose. So there will be options. The dice have been with me. I keep rolling like 17s and 18s. And I'm like, yeah, I'm awesome. Yeah, it really depends. I mean, like I, uh, but so it, it aids the replayability of the game a lot. Because we really did put a lot of permutations in there. If you, uh, even if you just reload and you just try different versions of it, um, you, you will see how much it branches and how it can be very rewarding, actually, uh, because it is how your adventure then goes. It's your personal adventure if you follow the dice. Because if you're going to have, for instance, like if it's just a flat check, uh, what's going to happen is everybody's going to be doing the same thing. Like they'll go for the good options because 95% of the people just pick the good options anyway. And uh, so you're, you're going to have a different experience. So it's certainly worth playing with the dice, but I can understand uh, certainly on, on, on your first runs that you might want to say, okay, I, I, wanna, I want something uh, a little bit more solid <laughs> that I can count on. I don't want to have critical failures every single time I roll. I don't mind because I sort of feel like critical failures are part, part and parcel of the D&D experience. They are. Now, Baldur's Gate 3 doesn't have a a DM built in who can yeah. uh, react on the fly to an amusing critical failure and send the game spinning off in an entirely different direction. But at the same time, I, I'm kind of willing to roll with it when the dice aren't 
going my way. It strikes me that actually that when I look at the turn-based combat and the way that you can interact with your environment and the dice and everything, it really hits at that spirit of D&D where you have the DM go, okay, here's the situation. Here's what's everything that you can do. What are you going to do? Well, yeah. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to try and shoot that exploding barrel over there. Okay, roll it. I roll it. Oh, I missed. Well, bad news. <laughs> yeah, well, that's literally it. Eh? So that's the, the feeling that we wanted to have in the game. And that's been, the dice has been very core, like, to mm-hmm. the entire design of the game. Like, uh, and not so much the that we wanted to have to have a, a continuous stream of failures. So we, we did count on the fact that we were going to have to add loaded dice. Uh, but more in the sense like we have to cater that it always works, right? So failure or success, players have to have a good time regardless of what their roles are going to be, and both in the narrative and in the uh, the combat system. So that in combat, what you just described is literally how we're thinking about it. They should always have a chance, even if the dice are very bad, right? And so I had some legendary sessions. One was on the press tour where I won uh, an early fight, which I was definitely losing just by throwing my boots. And it was very hilarious, but it was very <laughs> deep, right? I threw my boots at the guy and that, that, that made the difference. It was the only thing I had left. And so, and it felt really rewarding when it happened. And it's that moments and like, and it's also like we put things in there. There's, this, there's some dramatic scenes in there where you have to roll. And then it's like a DC 18 or something like that, which you can manipulate with things like guidance and so forth. But uh, it's a DC 18, and so it's very rare that you're gonna that you're going to manage. But then when you hit it, you feel really special, and you get a rewarding result. More more often, you will have seen the other result, which is also rewarding, but it's, uh, there's drama involved. And then you you quick load or you, you quick load, and you do your guidance so that the DC goes down. And then you you get the other version of the result. And that typically, at, it's at moments at that that people start realizing, maybe I should go with the dice. Because I see that the game handles things in different ways, depending on how that dice rolls. So maybe I should trust uh, the developer and, and, and that, that they're going to make sure that I'm going to have a good story. Just like your DM would probably wing it in function of what's happening at the table with the rolls. Well, everything I see is that Baldur's Gate 3 is shaping up to be a really excellent RPG, and I absolutely cannot wait to play the final version. Uh, From the outside looking in, it seems like it's been an especially intense development process. Uh, You guys had to delay by a couple weeks uh, the launch of Early Access. Like, What happened there, out of curiosity? Uh, A couple of problems. So it took us a week to figure out that our build servers were lying to us. Oh, so, no. yeah, so it's uh, so basically what happens is we have build servers all over the world because of all the studios that we have. And uh, we have a um, when we release something, there's a special process of compression that's happening on it. And so the data that went in was not the data that was packed. And so we kept on getting reports from our QA that stuff was breaking and we just didn't have any idea what was going on. And so it took us a long time to figure out. Uh, so, and that is actually one of the reasons also why we had uh, those technical glitches that uh, plagued multiplayer that were shipped uh, a couple of days ago. So they're solved now. So we're just waiting for the final tests. Uh, so it only took us a couple of days to figure it out, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very unfortunate. But yeah, it's one of those things that happens. And so that was one, one of the core reasons uh, because we lost too much time on it. Looking for these things took away development time from, from other things. And uh, yeah, there you go. All right, Sven. Thank you so much. Good luck. 
to you guys and continue to work on Baldur's Gate 3, and I'm looking forward to playing more in early access. It's available right now over <laughs> on Steam. You go check it out. Yeah, and on GOG uh, and on Stadia. Um, so thank you very much, Kat. Talk later. Talk later. All right, Nadia, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we explore a classic piece of music from RPG history because music is so important, so vital for understanding the genre that we love. This week, we have a song from Nadia. She picked one from Final Fantasy XIV, of course. Of course. See if you recognize this song. Okay, Nadia, this week's song is called Knowledge Never Sleeps, and you wrote, I'm playing through the Shadowbringers expansion in FF14, and as you've heard Mike and I rave back and forth on Discord, it's the basis for one of the FF series' best stories. Shadowbringers has an epic soundtrack to go with said story, and I thought I'd highlight one of the calmer, more emotional tracks, Knowledge Never Sleeps, the nighttime theme for the Crystarium. So Nadia, you want to talk to us a little more about this? Sure, the Crystarium is kind of one of the major bases of operation in Shadowbringers. And the thing to me that makes this game, this song a little bit special is Shadowbringers takes place in a world that's basically being consumed by light. Uh, usually you play RPGs where, oh no, darkness is consuming everything. This is a little different. This is the light is threatening to consume everything. And you have to kind of stop it as the warrior of darkness, about uh, my chemical romance, etc. And you basically go place by place restoring the night to this this uh, this world. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but when you arrive in Shadowbringers, um, you'll notice that there's, ne- there's never any night until you bring it back. And you kind of bring back the light to the area, you bring back the night to uh, the area where the Crystarium is. So that's how you kind of earn this nighttime theme, uh, Knowledge Never Sleeps, which is just gorgeous like it's just a beautiful calming calming song that has a really nice vocal uh portion about three minutes in and that's sung by uh, a multi-genre vocalist named amanda akin uh she does a lot of work i think she's also done work on supernatural but she's been like she's toured with like operas and stuff like that
The funny thing about Final Fantasy XIV music is a lot of it, most of it in fact, is credited to, of course, Nubo Yamatsu, who's the the composer for the Final Fantasy games, and he did compose uh, Final Fantasy XIV 1.0. But when Final Fantasy XIV became A Realm Reborn, most of what he wrote was scrapped, and they brought in uh, Masayoshi Soken, who... Uh, of course, there's still stuff by Nobu Yamatsu, but he, uh, Soken has done most of the music in Final Fantasy XIV. And he does not get the credit he deserves because XIV's soundtrack is, is absolutely gorgeous. It's just, just perfect, practically. And uh, in fact, Shadowbringers is a track uh, that he... He, he did uh, basically all the songs by himself for that one because Yamatsu in 2018, if you remember, he kind of took a leave of absence because, unfortunately, uh, he's been ill and he just kind of needed to rest. So, yeah, uh, Soken is, uh, until this point, he's not exactly unknown, but he's done, like, kind of smaller releases like uh, Drakengard 3, Dawn of Mana, uh, and Mario Hoops 3-on-3, so that's actually a pretty awesome game. But point is, Soken is a really fantastic composer, and this is actually a really good song. Right on. I really like Final Fantasy XIV's uh, soundtrack. I was kind of surprised by how good it was in, what was it, Theater Rhythm Final Fantasy along with Final Fantasy XI. I thought both of them had really killer soundtracks. Yeah, even before I was a Final Fantasy XIV fan, I would just listen to the music because so much of it was so good. Uh, there is a song, Good King Mogglemog, which is a kind of a joke song that is literally just, this is Halloween. I think Danny Elfman got really pissed off about that, but otherwise, this otherwise, is Halloween. This is Halloween. They, he uses they use exactly that same rhythm and tune, and it is quite literally lifted. But yes, everything else is is just fantastic, and I loved some of the themes that play when you fight like the big bosses in the game. Uh, they're they're really excellent. I always associate soundtracks of MMOs with more of an ambient feel. But mm-hmm. maybe maybe that's wrong. Um, and certainly Final Fantasy has such a rich legacy of music that it makes total sense that you have a really killer soundtrack. So, Yeah, now that you mention it, Final Fantasy XIV is not a very ambient soundtrack. It's, uh, it's very much in your face and uh, in your ears, if you will. Come to think of it, I think the only other RPG I really got into was Ragnarok Online. And that's the, uh, that's the same thing. No really ambient sounds, just some really killer rock tunes in some there. Some really killer beats. Hell yeah, That's, you're going to be grinding for hours, you may as well. All right, let's continue on to letters. It's letter time, Nadia. It's letter time. Last week, we talked about the Xbox 360 as part of our console RPG quest. And man, we got a lot of letters and notes from people for whom the Xbox 360 is a huge point of nostalgia. Let's go through a few of them. The first one is from Xander Scullion. They said... Your last episode covering the 360 RPGs gave me a huge burst of nostalgia. When I think of the good old days of gaming, I reflect on a lot of my childhood of the 16-bit era. But hearing the 360 talk gave me flashbacks of my early 20s. I worked at the aquarium at the time and remember grabbing bags of Mountain Dew bottle caps for two times experience points. (laughs) How I spent my Thanksgiving on Xbox Party Chat playing Skyrim with my friends. And the time I was in a band, I thought my guitarist was missing before a show because he muted his phone for hours playing Fallout New Vegas. And lastly, (laughs) hearing the talk on Lost Odyssey, I honestly forgot how great that game was and dug out the game and guide for the weekend. Video Dragon 64 asks, how many people have mentioned you forgot about Dragon Age on Xbox 360? 
<laughs> uh, a few, I think. I think they're the only one, honestly. But So we didn't talk about Dragon Age, and obviously that was a little bit of an omission. At the same to- time, though, I always kind of thought of Dragon Age Origin as a little more of a PC RPG. It felt like certainly Bioware hearkening back to its PC roots when it came out in 2010. It was obviously intended to be something of a modern rendition of Baldur's Gate, down to the fact that it was a, on PC at least, it was an overhead RPG with real time, with pause, much more strategic, that kind of thing. I didn't really associate Dragon Age Origin with the console experience because I played it on PC. I know you were different, Nadia. Yes, I did play it on consoles. It just never clicked with me, though. Um, I did like the dog. The dog was okay. The dog was awesome. The dog is amazing. <laughs> Dragon Age 2 was not good, though Eric will disagree Eric will with that for. until his dying day, because he's a stand <laughs> for that game for some reason. Let me tell you, Eric, the last part of Dragon Age 2 was very bad. Oh, you're just you're just courting trouble here, Kat. And you know what game does a much better job of doing the time skip thing than Dragon Age 2? Final Fantasy, or sorry, Dragon Quest V. Much yeah. better. Well, it does a really good job of that, the whole time quest thing. I, I never played 2, so I didn't don't really know how the time... In Dragon Age 2, there's a big time skip, and it ostensibly takes place over 10 years, but it doesn't really feel that way. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of games that try to pull off that, that trick, but don't really nail it. They don't really land, stick the landing. Dragon Quest V definitely does, and that's a, good, that's a pretty good feat for an old 16-bit RPG. So I, associate, I think Dragon Age 2 is by far the weakest game in the series. It had some really good DLC, I'll give it that. Uh, Dragon Age Inquisition was much better in my opinion that one is weirdly underrated maybe we'll get to it when we talk about the uh, PS4 console RPG quest wow it's coming it's coming alright Game That Tune says great Xbox 360 episode when Oblivion came out my roommate and I went halvesies on a 360 we played the hell out of that but the games I had the most fondness for were Blue Dragon and Lost Odyssey I've always been a sucker for Toriyama art, and Blue Dragon just had this fun whimsy that drew me in. The Uematsu soundtrack was also quite lovely, and Nadia nailed with her car crash metaphor with the song (laughs) Eternity. Man, that song is really annoying. I re-listened to it just recently. Oh, when I was editing the podcast, I re-listened to it. I'm like, wow, this is a really annoying song. (laughs) It It starts off so great with so much promise, and just kind of... It's much worse than... it's. Still better than that horrible, uh, what was it, throaty Creed type song oh, from God, Final Fantasy X? Yeah, under uh, shit. I can't or would remember you the, say the it's Creed? It. Um, but it's God, like no, very Creed, throaty, Creed like early two thousands like metal. The other world awaits you. That one, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. Okay, go. That, no, that was more like uh, I'd say Alexis on Fire or um, System of a Down. Maybe no, mm. not even System of a Down. I don't like Alexis that sound. No, neither do I. It was a very two. Th- it was a very early. It was very two thousands. Never... Very exactly. early two thousands. Yeah, I hate that I'm yeah, saying that. I hate that those are words that are coming up. Well, that's so too early two yeah, thousands. I'm God, too old that for was this. So long ago. Yeah. It wasn't that long Give ago. Me my cane. Leave you alone. Wait, twenty years? Holy crap! <laughs> I'm I'm still in the mind frame where I think like two thousand and six was like last year. Acts of the Blood God, the mind, the podcast where we think two thousand six was last year, but actually it was fifteen years ago. Oh, God. All right, Nadia, that's it for our mailbag, and that is it for our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why don't you send us an email? We may read it on the show. You can reach me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net, or you can find me on Twitter at the 
underscore Kappa. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show. We always enjoy hearing positive feedback from our listeners. And, of course, subscribe to our newsletter. I'm at Twitter at the underscore Kappa. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And I'm on Twitch at TV. We'll be back next week, as always, with more RPG goodness. Until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for joining us. Thanks to Sven for dropping by in. And until then, happy adventuring. <laughs>